0: Yes, Father, we thank you that you will hold us until that day when Jesus Christ returns. That no power of hell, no scheme of man could pluck us from your hand. Lord, we recognize this evening that in Christ alone do we have hope. And so we ask that you would use these gifts that have been given, uh, those given through the week, that you would use the lives of those who've given them that we might make Christ known in Nottingham, in all nations and in the next generation, that he might be lifted high and that we might live lives that glorify him. As we come to your word now, would you turn our hearts and turn our eyes to him by your spirit, that we might leave here rejoicing all the more in our great saviour, your son, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, please do uh, take a seat and please uh, keep your Bibles open at Exodus 18. I'm struggling to get mine to stay open at Exodus 18, but uh, we'll see how we go. No, never mind. (laughs) The UK general election of July 1945 was remarkable for a number of reasons. Uh, It was held uh, less than two months after the Second World War had ended in Europe. Fighting was still going on in the Pacific. Uh, Indeed, it took three weeks uh, to count the votes, as the ballot papers of soldiers still stationed overseas had to be brought back to Britain so that they could be included. Going into the vote, everyone assumed that the Conservative Party was sure to win another term. After all, they were led by none other than Winston Churchill, the man who had brought Britain back from the brink. He had an 83% approval rating. And yet... When the results were announced on the 26th of July, they revealed one of the greatest upsets in British political history. Labour won nearly 48% of the vote and 393 seats, a massive majority. It remains to this day the biggest national swing of any election since the Second World War. Clement Attlee became prime minister and and led the first ever majority Labour government in this country. You see, as popular as Churchill may have been, it had become clear during the election campaign that he did not have a clear vision for what Britain should look like in peacetime. As able as he may have been as a military leader, as inspirational as his speeches to the nation were, still there was a widespread opinion that this was not the man to lead the country now the war was over. A recognition, perhaps, that, that what it takes to, make, to be a good leader for a nation in crisis is not quite the same as what's required for a nation looking to rebuild. And as we reach Exodus 18 this evening, well, we find the people of ancient Israel perhaps at a similar turning point in their history. Indeed, this chapter functions like a hinge in the middle of the book of Exodus. Up until this moment, the narrative has focused on the escape from Egypt, on the great wonder of the deliverance of God's people from the oppression and injustice of Pharaoh. After this moment, attention turns towards the building of the ancient Israelite nation. What will it look like for for God's people to live lives of faithfulness and witness as they become established in their own land? How are they to conduct themselves now that they're free to make their own laws, to follow their own priorities? The crisis of captivity is over. What will the future of freedom look like? And I guess central to all of that is the question of how these people will be governed, how they'll be led. Throughout the book of Exodus so far, we've seen Yahweh at work to rescue his people to bring justice on their enemies and to establish his fame in the world. But how would he lead in peacetime? Does he have a vision for the years ahead? Well, that's the question that the second half of Exodus unpacks. And here in this hinge chapter, we have a perhaps unexpected guide to lead us through that transition. Read with me again from verse 1. Now Jethro, the priest of Midian and father-in-law of Moses, heard of everything God had done for Moses and for his people Israel, and how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. You might remember Jethro from back in chapters 2 and 3. He's a Midianite, not an ancient Israelite. In fact, as the the Bible story goes on, the Midianites will become one of the key enemies of ancient Israel. But Jethro, Jethro the Midianite, well, he's been following the progress of Moses and his people with great interest. Not least because Moses is married to his daughter. In fact, we find out in the next couple of verses that Zipporah, Moses' wife, and, and their sons have been staying with Jethro for some time. We don't know how long, it could have been a while, or they could have only just gone ahead to see the family as the Israelite camp moved closer to Midian. But either way, it's clear that Jethro has heard what's been going on. Even the names of his two grandsons give an outline summary of the story of God's people. They were foreigners in a foreign land, but now God had been their helper. Now, though, Jethro is keen to hear all the details from Moses himself. Verse 7. Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. They greeted each other and then went into the tent. Moses told his father-in-law about everything the Lord had done to Pharaoh and the Egyptians for Israel's sake. And about all the hardships they had met along the way and how the Lord had saved them. Now, there's an interesting parallel here with the Amalekites that we met last week. You see, they too had heard that the ancient Israelites were in town. And they too came. But they came in opposition, they came and attacked. Now, Jethro, another foreigner, comes near. But he comes in peace, in curiosity. He comes and he listens. Verse 9. Jethro was delighted to hear about all the good things the Lord had done for Israel in rescuing them from the hand of the Egyptians. He said, praise be to the Lord who rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians and of Pharaoh and who rescued the people from the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all other gods for he did this to those who had treated Israel arrogantly. Now don't miss this, because this is astonishing. This arguably is the high point, the culmination, the conclusion of the exodus. Why? Because Jethro's delight, Jethro's declaration, is a fulfillment of a promise that God made as he revealed himself to Pharaoh through Moses way back in chapter 9. There, as he announced the impending plague of hail, Yahweh revealed his purpose in bringing about the salvation of his people. He said this to Pharaoh. He said, By now I could have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with a plague that have wiped you off the earth, but I have raised you up for this very purpose. That I might show you my power and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. As Moses shared the, the wonders that the Lord had done with Jethro the Midianite, so he proclaimed the name of Yahweh among the nations. As Jethro the Midianite responded in awe and celebration. As he declared Yahweh to be the only true and living God. So the nations were brought into the family of God. What happens next is truly stunning. Verse 12. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and other sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat a meal with Moses' father-in-law in the presence of God. Friends, this has been God's plan all along. Even further back than his first call of Moses, right back to the point that he first called Abraham. Right from then on, it has been the intention of Yahweh to use his chosen people to bless the nation. To call all peoples into relationship with him. That is what it is to be Yahweh. That is the kind of God he is. And So Jethro the Midianite joins the elders of Israel. As they eat a meal in the presence of God. In the presence of the God of justice who rights wrongs and brings freedom to the oppressed. In the presence of the God of grace, who sovereignly chooses to save those whom he loves. In the presence of the God of mercy, who in his kindness includes even those who are far off, even those who oppose him, even those who deserve only his wrath. This God grafts in even the likes of Jethro the Midianite into his family so that the whole world might know that Yahweh is God. That's what the Exodus was all about. Saving a people that through them he might save the nations. And as Jethro sits feasting with the ancient Israelites, we have a beautiful picture of just what our God is like. Of just how he acts in this world. Of just who he sets out to save. People of every tribe and tongue and nation. So that one day we might gather in his presence. And proclaim his name, Yahweh, in all the earth. And we could end there. The exodus has fulfilled its purpose. God's people are are free from slavery and are bringing in the nations. The war's over. But of course, that's not the end. Because between that meal then and the greater meal that it points us towards, In the age to come. Between those two, well, there is a whole lot of life to be lived. Lived in the here and now. Lived in the reality of this sin-stained and struggling world. After the celebration of the night before, the narrative brings us down to earth with a bump. As Moses and Jethro are confronted with the day-to-day realities of community life. Verse 13, the next day Moses took his seat to serve as judge for the people and they stood around him from morning till evening. When his father-in-law saw all that Moses was doing for the people, he said, what is this you are doing for the people? Why do you alone sit as judge while all these people stand around you from morning till evening? Moses answered him, because the people come to me to seek God's will. Whenever they have a dispute, it is brought to me and I decide between the parties and inform them of God's decrees and instructions. I wonder, did you notice the change in language there? Just, just look back with me over the first half of our chapter. Jethro hears of, of everything that God has done, of how the Lord has brought Israel out of Egypt, Moses tells him of everything the Lord has done, how the Lord has saved them. He's delighted to hear about all the good things the Lord has done. Praise be to the Lord, he says, who rescued you. The Lord is greater than all the other gods, for he did this. There's no doubt in Jethro's mind or in Moses that it was the Lord, Yahweh, who had saved his people. It was the Lord who had won the war. But now, now that they're looking to build the peace, well, look at what Moses says in verse 15. The people come to me. Whenever they have a dispute, it is brought to me. And I decide between them. maybe yahweh is a god for wartime a god for a crisis but maybe not for the everyday maybe not for the humdrum of community life maybe he's he's saved his people but now he expects them to get on with it themselves he'll be there if there's another emergency But we've already seen, haven't we, that that Moses doesn't have the strength to lead this people by himself. He's not going to be able to take on that mantle. And Jethro spots that immediately. Why do you alone sit as judge, he asks. And then verse 17, he says, what you are doing is not good. You and, and these people who come to you will only wear yourselves out. The work is too heavy for you. You cannot handle it alone. It is crystal clear that Moses alone is not capable of forming and shaping a nation, of building a people. And what follows, as Jethro advises Moses, well, well, it may contain all sorts of useful principles around delegation and sharing burdens, tips for, for structuring and organisation and, and distribution of workload. But Friends, we need to remember that this is not primarily a management textbook. The purpose of the, the book of Exodus is not to provide business coaching for the stressed and overworked. No, this is God's word that was given to us that we might know our God that he might reveal himself to us, and that we might better understand who he is, who we are in relation to him, and how we are to live in light of those truths. I think the reality of what we see here about God is more fundamentally helpful to the stressed and overworked than any management tips that we may detect in Jethro's words. Because what these verses reveal about our God is that he is not just a God for the crises. He's not just a wartime leader. But rather in his kindness, by his grace, he is a God who faithfully leads his people in the day to day. Who graciously provides in the mundane as well as in the miraculous. Indeed, the rest of the book, which we'll return to in the new year, uh, the rest of the book of Exodus is Yahweh continuing to lead his people as they build the peace, continuing to concern himself with their well-being and their flourishing. Because whilst he has brought them out of slavery, has redeemed them from a life of oppression and injustice, he is not finished with them yet. Unlike Churchill, Yahweh is not merely a wartime leader. He has redeemed his people that they may know life with him and perfect rest. And until that is achieved fully and finally, it is his intention to continue to provide for his people. To continue to guide them, to continue to lead them through each and every aspect of life in this world. And so Yahweh will, will give them decrees and instructions. That's what Moses is to teach them, verse 20. He is to show them the way they are to live and how they are to behave. And Yahweh will provide human leaders at every level, leaders of thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens, graciously provided, so that they might know in this life something of the glorious rest that awaits them in the life to come. And Yahweh will work to sustain his people, verse 23, that their leaders might be able to stand the strain, and that the people themselves might be satisfied. See, Jethro's words are wise, not simply because they make good human sense, because they reflect the character of the God that he has come to know through the story of the Exodus. A God who leads his people in every season of life. Who provides dramatic and and decisive rescue, and who provides daily refreshment. A God for wartime and for the peace that follows. I think that's the gist of of what the Lord himself says to the ancient Israelites in verse four of chapter 19. He says, you yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. It was always God's intention to lead and equip his people for life after Egypt. Why? So that they might be the people that he made them to be. His treasured possession, his faithful kingdom of priests, his holy nation. And we would do well to see that the God we may know today is that same God that the ancient Israelites knew back then. He delights to save people from the slavery of sin, to save from every tribe and tongue and nation, just as he did with Jethro. And he intends to lead his people through every season of life thereafter. Not only to save but also to sustain. How often, I wonder, do we get that wrong? We delight in the, the saving work of our gracious God, rejoicing that he has brought us from death to life, from slavery to freedom, and yet we live day by day as if he now expects us to get on with it ourselves, to rely on our own diligence or willpower or, sheer doggedness to live our lives as we wait for his promised rest. Failing to see that, that he is to be our peacetime leader as well. Failing to see the provision he gives day by day in his beautiful word, in the brothers and sisters that he puts around us, in his powerful spirit living within us. Our God is a God who saves people That he might lead that people. That he might make them into his treasured possession. That's what we see as, as the book of Exodus pivots from redemption to rule. From salvation to sanctification. And it's what we see supremely in the Lord Jesus Christ for he embodies both halves of Exodus 18. He came that the nations might know God, that there might be peace and goodwill between God and all mankind. The Magi, the shepherds, the rich, the poor, the Jewish, the Gentile, the close by and the far off. He came to save, to save and to redeem But he also came to rule, to establish a kingdom, to shape and mold a people. That shaping will not be complete until he comes again, but it begins in the here and now. Our God loves to save and he loves to lead. And he has done both supremely through his son, Jesus Christ. Let us turn to him, not only for salvation in the crises of life, but also for shaping in the day by day. As we seek to be led by him in every area of our lives. Friends, we sang about it this morning. For mistakes we can't forget. And the sins that still beset, we have a lamb. For our fraught and anxious realm, for the fears that overwhelm, we have a throne. The lamb sits on the throne. He is our saviour and our king. Let us not make the mistake of of only seeing his provision in salvation, supposing that we're to get on with it ourselves after that. No. Let us instead rejoice in his redemption and submit to his rule and reign in the here and now. Letting him shape us for the glorious rest that is to come. That's what we'll see as we return to Exodus in the new year. But you know, it's also what we'll see as we turn our eyes to the coming Saviour, to the coming King. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders. From that time on and forever, the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Oh dear friends, that was the God of the ancient Israelites. That was the God of Jethro the Midianite. And that is our God. Let's pray. Almighty God, Saviour and King, we thank you that you are a leader for all the crises of life and for all the everyday. We thank you that in Jesus Christ, you came to save a people, to bring us out of slavery to sin, To redeem us, to free us. And we thank you now that in the risen Lord Jesus, you rule and reign in our lives day by day. Teach us, Lord, to rejoice in your provision, not only in salvation, but also in your rule and your reign. Teach us to rejoice as you shape us for your rest. And so, Lord, teach us to rejoice that you are bringing the nations in, that you are gathering a people, and that you are making us into your people, your treasured possessions,